developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hello, and welcome to the Agora Podcast Network's The Exchange. I'm your host, Tom Daly. This episode, I'm lucky to be joined by the hosts of the Lands of Leviathan podcast, Peter Sleeman and Brock Rademan. The Lands of Leviathan is one of my favorite hidden gem podcasts because of the substantive and simultaneously silly way they test drive real-world socioeconomic or political concepts and philosophies in the fantasy worlds of popular culture. This conversation was coordinated across three continents and bridged something like a 13-hour time difference. And despite the ludicrously early hour it had me up at, it was great fun. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And without further delay... Follow me, if you will, through the looking glass to the lands of Leviathan. Peter and Brock, welcome to The Exchange. Thanks for having us. Thanks, mate. I'm glad to have you, because having you guys on to talk about lands of Leviathan actually gives me an opportunity to talk about two of my favorite things, besides history, politics, and (laughs) nerd stuff. Well, we're glad to hear that. Well, that's two of our favorite things as well. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Now, I guess this is sort of a confession for me, uh, because believe it or not, despite the fact that uh, I've successfully attracted a mate and produced viable offspring, I do self-identify well as a nerd. <laughs> you give us hope, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what I'm here for. I'm here to shatter stereotypes. You know, really though, I I love you know Star Trek, Star Wars. Lord of the Rings, Song of Ice and Fire, DC, Marvel Comics, all of that. Uh, and that, that's part of you know what I think makes your show so great. Obviously, you guys, too, self-identify as nerds. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Wonderful. So let's start there. Uh, so what, what were the fantastical worlds or stories or characters you know, that captivated you guys when you were young uh, that put you on this awful track in life? I remember Peter telling me once when we were having a debate, we were trying to work out what stimulated his intellectual mind, and he, he confessed in his young years, he spent a lot of time watching the Teletubbies, and these far-fetched creatures really <laughs> entertained him. <laughs> no, that is not what happened at all. I'm what happened, old, Peter? I'm too old for the Teletubbies. That stuff is, I, you know, it's past, uh, I'm, I'm too old for that stuff. <laughs> uh, I remember, I think... I got it. I I got into nerdy stuff um, because my dad had the original Star Wars on VHS, um, and we had like a big collection of VHS tapes in. And because I was born in the mid eighties, and obviously uh, technology came to South Africa a little bit late, so we were still. I mean, up until the age of, I don't know when when we started watching like DVDs and stuff. But, I mean, we were watching VHSs for most of my childhood. And uh, we used to watch the original Star Wars. And that was even before George Lucas released the uh, edited yeah. versions. Yeah. Um, oh, God. Those <laughs> so, I mean, and we watched, because, yeah, like, I'm sure you remember the VHS tapes. Like, they just got destroyed yeah. when mm-hmm. you watched them too much. Um, and <laughs> we used to we used to watch them all the time. I mean, I could, like, quote Star Wars from when I was a kid. My dad loved Star Wars as well. Um, but also my dad was big into, uh, you know, the hero's journey and a whole bunch of different philosophy. And he was also into, like, science fiction and stuff. So I also grew up reading 
fantasy and science fiction. I was reading Isaac Asimov and, um, you know, the Foundation series and uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Dune. I remember reading that. And also Terry Pratchett because I was big into fantasy and obviously The Lord of the Rings. Although I have a a horrible confession to make is that I didn't – what year did the first Lord of the Rings movie come out? Uh, was it 2000? So I, I must have yeah, been about 2001. 2001, I think. Uh, 2001. So, oh, no, actually, it must have been about like 14, 15 then. Um, I hadn't read the books because everybody told me, like, while I was growing up, that the Lord of the Rings books were super boring and, like, just not to read them. Uh, I don't know book? why people told yeah. me that. It's ridiculous. And then when I watched the first movie... Um, and we got to the end, and spoilers, spoiler alert for guys who hadn't got there, and Gandalf falls, I said to my mom, I was like, so what happens to Gandalf? Like, that guy can't die, he's, he's a wizard, man. She's like, you have to read the books to find out. And I, then I started reading the books. I was like, these books are awesome! I have to, I, yeah, I have to read these. <laughs> so, uh, I'll, I'll, see your, I'll see your story, I'll, I'll one-up you though, because not only, not only had I not read the books, but I took my brother's to watch uh, to, to the theater when we were young and uh we saw the preview for this fantastic fantasy um movie that was going to come out with orcs and wizards and hobbits and everything we thought this is great we're going to buy tickets we'll be first in queue and we'll go watch this film together so when it, when it came out we went to watch lord of the rings and we had no idea it was a trilogy <laughs> so but when we, <laughs> we got to the end of the film we see I don't know, after three three and a half hours of sitting in the same seat we see these two hobbits staring off into the distance watching Mount Doom spew lava. And we're like, but but why does the movie end now? You haven't even gotten there yet. <laughs> What's going on? I want my money back. And that's when my, my uncle told us, no, 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 it's a trilogy, you idiots. It's, uh, you're supposed to go and read the books first and then uh, get an idea of what's going on. So um, so complete ignorance on my part there, but also shared the the love of Star Wars from a young age through my father as well. In fact, our tapes, our VHS tapes were so worn that we only got we could only rely on the audio. So we painted oh, wow. a big uh, piece of cardboard black, uh, sprinkled some silver glitter over it like stars, and we stuck we we positioned a video camera in front of this black piece of cardboard, so it looked like it was looking at the galaxy with all the stars there. And we modeled our Lego craft on all the, the spacecraft that we'd seen in, in Star Wars, and we played the the, the audio in the background, and as the scenes played through the movie. We flew our model ships through the across the the screen, so that the camera picked up our Lego interpretation of the story. Huh. And we so enjoyed that that uh, you know we learned the lines and we learned the characters very well, and we got some Star Wars books and Star Wars Lego when that came out. So that was pretty much the start of the science fiction era for us. And of course, Jorah uh, you know, Tolkien just stole my heart with that trilogy, mm-hmm. and I still haven't read the Silmarillion. So that's oh good man, stuff. that's good stuff. Yeah, I've read. Yeah, that. I believe so. Yeah. Oh, one okay, Brock. I think you win <laughs> with <laughs> modeling Lego uh, spacecraft and doing little like theatrical performances. That's nerd <laughs> as fuck. Um, <laughs> but all right, guys. That, that so this nerdy stuff that is just one aspect of your show. Um, now, I want to talk briefly about you know, the other. Um, when did you guys decide that you wanted to study politics and political science? Uh, well, I'll answer first. Um, I was actually – I'm trying to remember – because I didn't know what I wanted to study. Um, when I finished high school – It's hardly surprising. Yeah, I didn't know what the hell was going on. I still don't know what's going on with my life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> when I was uh, – when I finished high school, I had no idea what I was going to do. And I only just barely scraped through my final exams in high school. Just got just got into university. So I, I thought, like, uh, maybe I should just, like, take some time off and get, get my shit together. Um, and I went traveling. Uh, I went to live in London for two and a half years. And uh, in that time, I started to get interested in British politics um, and I just remember having like a very strong interest in what was going on, uh, you know, so like following the electoral system and enjoy, I actually enjoyed watching the speeches in British Parliament um, and living in London. It was cool because I could actually go every now and then we sometimes went down to um, Westminster and actually had got to sit in the Parliament when they were, you know, discussing and having question time, which is fun. Um, but when I got to when I started studying, because I had to go back to South Africa to study. 
I was actually going to do, I think I was going to do my undergrad in anthropology. Um, but it turned out that the University of Pretoria, which is both mine and Brock's uh, undergrad alma mater, uh, we it didn't have a set degree in anthropology. It just had a general BA, of which one of the subjects could be anthropology. And I remember somebody telling me, like, it looks much better to have a degree, like, in something specialized. Um, and then one of the things was you could do a degree in political science um, and... It was political science and international relations. And you could have anthropology as one of your electives. But when I started studying political science, I was like, this is exactly what I want to do with my life. Screw anthropology. Um, so that's how I got Wise decision. It. Yeah. Although now, in my work, I actually do a lot of political anthropology. Um, so no I, shame. I still deal with a lot of anthropological stuff. Brock, stop hating, okay? It's just... And I just don't hate on somebody who's better than you. Okay, it's just okay. <laughs> uh, anthropology is just not better than me. Um, no, mine's uh, less career oriented. I um, mm-hmm. I was just trying to figure out what's going to make the world a better place, and I figured political science is what can help inform policy in Africa. So I'm going to stick it to that and hopefully make a difference in someone's life. And that's probably the most direct route to take. When I found out University of Pretoria is offering a specialized course in political science, um, as opposed to all the other universities in uh, in South Africa, then uh, that just seemed like the obvious choice for the undergrad. And obviously, to you know specialize outside of South Africa was the next step. So that's when uh, that's when actually that's where Peter and I met. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Why don't you tell us about that that meeting of the minds? Uh, it was oh, at the British parliamentary debating. Um, so there was this, we had a society on campus that encouraged four teams to compete on either side of the house um, in a you know typical parliamentary style as occurs in Westminster. And uh, because it's teams of two, um, since Peter and I were both studying politics, we figured we'd understand arguments the same way and it would cut down on our prep times. So you only get 15 minutes to prepare for a motion. It would make sense if, you know, we'd be really efficient if we could prepare our arguments while cutting out and using a lot of jargon. It, we wouldn't have to explain things to, to each other. Say if he was an anthropologist, then, you know, that would take a lot of time. To <laughs> um, and so uh, and we, we, we got along and we enjoyed some success doing that. And obviously when you're sitting around waiting, at, uh, most debating tournaments, you just spend a lot of time waiting. And uh, in, in, in all that free time that we had, we debated uh, which you know which universe would be best as a for a post scarcity resource society you know how would the economy work in harry potter's universe which avenger would be most suited to serve on the united nations security council and those kinds of debates thought you know gave us a good entertainment and a lot of stim- intellectual stimulation so um yeah the friendship formed and stuck and is still going yeah yeah and i think uh, because i took so many because i took gap years um, I was in first year when you were in second year, um, even though Brock's yeah. even though Brock's a little bit younger than me. Um, Only in age and uh, and in just everything. It's, it's <laughs> I feel sometimes like I'm Brock's dad. Like I just look after him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, when we started debating, um, although in the beginning, I think our first uh, tournament that we went to, we weren't partners, and but we were both pissed off no. with the uh, partners that we did have at that tournament. So and yes. then we ended up uh, partnering up, and for the rest of our debating career until Brock left university, we were debating partners, which was pretty fun. Uh, and yeah, and we also um, what, what was that stuff we did? We got involved in student parliaments together. Oh um, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh yeah, because Brock, so Brock and I both ran uh, for political office in. At, in student politics and Brock I think that you got a seat and then I was the speaker for the house oh what a terrible time of my life I'm like oh, I got post-traumatic stress disorder from that I never want to get into that again <laughs> yeah yeah so we did that together as well oh that's awesome so needless to say uh, the political world can often be a grim place and I think that brings me uh, to my next point about Lands of Leviathan uh, because the one thing I really love about it is the intersection of reality and fantasy. So if, for example, the discussion is about authoritarian regime types, uh, in- instead of citing you know, brutal historical or contemporary dictators like Stalin or Kim Jong-un, uh, you, know, you can provide listeners that little bit of an escape. 
uh, and allow them to consider the substance of your concepts uh, in a context uh, without all the real-world human suffering uh, needing to really be part of it. So, you know, you can move that conversation to the zombie apocalypse uh, and utilize the rictatorship as an example, and I think that's really neat. Um, so, Brock, you'd mentioned uh, kind of talking about those, you know, the Jedi Council, UN type things, uh, you know, fooling around in that debate league. But uh, when did you guys decide to make this a podcast concept? Well, we had been um, discussing professional goals for a while. Uh, Peter and I trying to figure out where we would fit as um policy analysts um, in our future careers and how we could work together. Um, but we knew that that would take some some lengthy postgraduate studies. And in that time, I was doing my... We'd also always talked about how you get these debates on air to, to share um, via mainstream media, uh, via online media. And when I was doing my master's in Germany last year, um, and Peter also hit his um, gender studies and development uh, full swing, all these debates from our undergrad came up again. Uh, and so, if, you know, we, we were allowed the comfort to recede back into our academic chairs uh, and, uh, and entertain our, you know, our student mindsets again that we'd forgotten in the, in the brief periods that we had been working. Um, so in that time, about a year ago, we thought, well, actually, hang on, let's make this podcast real. You know, let's stop talking about it. It could be a good opportunity to test the ideas we've been using that – um, that would compare political ideas and philosophies and ideologies and all the other parts of political science, but in a fictitious um, science fiction world, uh, use, the, use the, the space to test these ideas and hopefully that can somehow get us to understand better what we're trying to do in our, in our careers. Um, so it was a meeting of, of, those three, of those three forces last year that, uh, that helped us form this. Mm. And I think another thing is, uh, you know, I was I've been listening to podcasts for a while, uh, for at least a good couple of years, and um, they're really a good avenue for explaining different concepts and and making people aware of, uh, you know, different news and and shattering myths and things like and that. Debunking myths, we love yeah. that. Yeah, and that was that was one of the things is that like, you know, politics can be depressing. But when you start looking at politics from a historical point of view, when you when you zoom out a bit, you start to notice other trends um, that sometimes aren't that depressing. Like obviously, there's the terrible authoritarian regimes, but there's you know there's, sometimes there's been authoritarian regimes that uh, not that bad, and there are you know absolute monarchies yeah. that have existed in Europe where you know the majority of the time it was okay, maybe not the greatest, yeah. but uh, not too bad, and. I think our popular the reason one of the reasons we went through popular culture not just because we knew a lot about it but also because popular culture is a representation of the way that we perceive politics and politics in popular culture is horrible it's just the worst yeah. like that's why House of Cards is one of our first uh, podcasts because that view of politics is just like this is terrible um, and yeah. we kind of wanted to to shatter that a bit and say, you know what, politics is not th- that bad. Obviously, it's got its terribleness, um, but it's not as it's bad. What? As Sorry, is that a real word? Terribleness is totally a word. Stop correcting my English. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. um, but uh, yeah, you know, politics is not as bad as people think, and um, it, you know, it, it's obviously a force for good. And I think Brock and I have have had a little bit of criticism from people saying that we're sometimes a little bit too. Uh, I don't know, apologist about politics. <laughs> yeah, it is like, a, but, there, but there are a few other reasons as well. Um, you know, f- the the fiction that comes through in um, in popular culture, like Peter says, it it can crystallize stereotypes, and and you want to debunk those as a political scientist. You want to show how it, it they oversimplify the nuances that you know in in regular political behavior and phenomenon. Um, but what's more is the science fiction can also bring out the fun in politics. So, you know, politics can be terribly, not just depressing and ugly, but also just boring. Mm. Um, and and to get to see that, you know, from the view of a zombie or a lightsaber, that just makes it a lot more interesting. And condensed into a 60-minute episode, it can make politics a lot more fun. Yeah. So there was a, there's, there was that attraction and the appeal of of popular culture that could make you know, the dreariness of uh, of political phenomena a lot more exciting um, and lastly the other thing I wanted to add was it's 
it certainly gets it gets me excited because in when you engage when I engage with people who, who don't pay a lot of attention to politics and express their decision not to, um, but yet they still want to find out your opinion and they still want to sort of reify their stereotypes and and their shadow heuristics. You find yourself just sort of obeying to you know to what they want to hear, um, just to shut them up. And I think that's it's just it's just unfair to to your opinions. Um, you know, you'd want a good sixty minutes that if anybody wants to listen, um, not that they had to, but if they wanted mm-hmm. to, that would be the space to say, "This is actually what's going on in my opinion." Mm-hmm. And if you don't want to listen to it, that's okay. But I'm not going to just give you the five minute version of what I think you want to hear so that you'll shut up. It's just unfair on the reality. Mm-hmm. So to to avoid contorted opinions and uh, walk mindsets, I think this podcast was a good opportunity to to give myself the space I, I feel I needed to to say the things I wanted to say about politics. Now, I was wondering, have you guys ever read Tolkien's essay on fairy stories? I have not, but I've heard it's so good. I uh, yeah, I mean it 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 go ahead Pete, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I think I did read it. I, I, it's ringing a whole bunch of bells, but I, I think it was many, many, many years ago. Um, it was, if I'm not wrong, it's like his analysis of the British, uh, you know, English uh, fairy mythology, yeah, and uh, the whole sort interactions of, yeah. between fairies and iron and all the different types of fairies and things like that. It, it touches on that, but it also is a is a, I guess, a bit of a literary analysis about like what makes. Uh, like a really good fantasy story, mm. and yes, uh, it's something yeah. that always comes to mind when I listen to to Lands of Leviathan. So I'm gonna just take a, a second and to briefly describe it uh, for for you guys and and the listeners. So basically, he says the best fantasy doesn't actually require a reader, or in this case, a listener, to suspend their disbelief. But if you create a fictional world that's internally consistent and logical. Uh, the author can then create what's what he terms second belief, um, and then you can kind of naturally build in things like zombies or dragons into the DNA of the, the bones of the world that you're creating, and you're still the reader knows that this isn't real, but you're not actually forcing him to suspend disbelief because within the context of that world, this is still believable. Um, and if you successfully build that, he he contends that it allows the reader then to review their own world, meaning the real world, from the perspective of that creative world. Um, And thereby, you can recover your own mind from your everyday biases and presuppositions and be more open to the possibility of having their minds changed uh, in some basic way, basically by being given this fresh pair of eyes to look at their own world through. Um, so are you guys still with me? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. I'm listening intently. Yeah, so I've always sort of felt that way when listening to Lands of Leviathan because the best fantasy worlds that you guys pick, you know, ones like Walking Dead, uh, Westeros, Star Trek, Star Wars, and, and certainly I think um, the Tolkien worlds, um, they have that. They're very logically consistent, uh, and they... And they, I think they do create that second belief. And I think that makes them a much stronger vehicle for you know, using and plugging in these real-world examples. Um, so that's my long-winded way of asking what goes into your selection of these worlds and these topic pairings that you choose. Is something like this part of it? Because like The Walking Dead really works for certain things. But something like Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland just wouldn't work because mm. those things are like they make no sense at all. I think, and they lend themselves less easily to political analysis. Well, I think I mean Gulliver's Travels is an interesting thing because that is a I mean Gulliver's Travel was written as an analogy of colonialism. Uh, we should probably take that on at some point. <laughs> but uh, Brock, do you mind if I if I go first? Well, I would just say Tolkien would say Gulliver's Travel is so heavily allegorical that you can't yes. do anything but that which it was written about. Exactly. Yes. Like, well, that's. Yeah, I, I that's... think Gulliver's Travels was written as an allegory. Like the author yeah. was really out uh, to make a point. Um, and I mean, there are points that Tolkien makes. You know, techn- you know, industrialization versus 
traditionalism. Um, but yeah, definitely. So I, I think that from the from what you were saying, like what what Tolkien expresses there is conversations that Brock and I had when we were first formulating the podcast, and one of the conversations we, what the, that we had where we talked about universal rules, um, and because. A lot of people don't have fun and get seem to get upset when you do this, but I love dissecting universes and the rules that the authors and creators have established and then subjecting that universe to its own rules and then seeing where it falls apart. Um, so, you know, a universe doesn't have to – a fictional universe doesn't have to adhere to our rules because obviously that doesn't work. So in the case of a zombie apocalypse, you have to – the, the implicit assumption is this is a universe in which a virus can exist that can do this to the human body. And anybody who then makes the uh, you know criticism of like, oh, well, the dead can't walk around because that body is dead. It's like, yeah, but that's in our world. In the, this fictional world, the, there's the implicit assumption that that's possible. So we don't even have to deal with that. But then so we but we accept all the rules within that universe and then we can have fun with the fact that now we can play around with it so i think the harry potter universe is a good example of this because the harry potter universe is um say hello to a new era of mental health care cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100 percent online you'll experience the all-new Cerebral Way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You know, J.K. Rowling is very good at writing dialogue and establishing characters. She's terrible at establishing universe building because her rules... Yeah don't make much sense. So she establishes an economy in which in a in a universe that shouldn't really have an economy because wizards have the ability to create natural resources out of nothing. So yeah. You know, why we know that in that universe there is somebody who has the magical ability to transmute s- stuff into gold. Like yeah, it's difficult, but I mean, we made bomb. We made nuclear bombs. That was difficult, but it, we didn't hold that back. So you know, yeah. there's no reason that look conflict, at us go. Yeah, <laughs> there's no reason that conflict should exist in that universe. And when you open up that discussion, then you can have a lot of fun, and you can explain economic concepts. You know, you can then you can start looking at supply and demand, and that's what we did in our episode on. Um, Star Trek, because obviously mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry created a universe that he did think out quite nicely, and he yeah. created a society that was utopian, um, his version of the perfect society, and he created a society with no material needs. And from that, we were then able to discuss economics, what effect would that have on society and things like that. So, yeah, I, I, I agree with what you've said. We engage with the rules and regulations that are set up by the author. And it's just before, uh, Brock, I'm sure you've got stuff to say, but I'd like to say about Tolkien, um, because there is obviously the famous plot hole in Tolkien's work, which was, you know, why didn't the eagles just fly Frodo and them to uh, mm-hmm. to Doom? And I know that in the books, there he attempts to explain to he doesn't really explain it, but he attempts to because it's not Gandalf who controls the eagles; it's Radagast the Brown. But you know, as Gandalf, I would just say like, you're an intelligent wizard, dude. You, in fact, you know, you, you're essentially an angel. Uh, you're you know what's going on. Just go get some eagles and travel to Mount Doom. You can do it. We know that you have the power. Or go find Radagast. You know, like rather go send the Fellowship of the Ring to find that dude than walk to Mordor because that seems crazy. Um, so it's funny that Tolkien himself probably you know. But I suppose when you're constructing a fictional universe, there are always going to be some plot holes. There are, but I didn't find that one uh, tremendously. Um persuasive because the the eagles uh, have their own agency it's not like they listen to anybody they have their own king they have their own political system yeah but i mean yep 
the world is at stake here. This is not like you know, the, the, if Sauron wins, everybody gets owned. It's you know, I, I, <laughs> I mean, Denethor. Denethor didn't get that. Why should the uh, King exactly. of the Eagles get that? Well, you would hope Wait, Denethor was insane. <laughs> Just but where he didn't help out at the Battle of Minas Tirith, why would they, you know, get involved? Why would they want to take on nine winged ring ringwraiths? Uh, but they did. To, you know, they did at the end. They came. They came and helped out. So and they came they, to the Battle of the Five Armies in the Hobbit as well. Yeah. So Tolkien definitely used the eagles as a Deus Ex Machina. Uh, <laughs> no, he used them as, as as rescue agents, right? Those are like flying ambulances. Yeah. It was not, it that's was like literally the definition the, of well, Deus <laughs> When you guys read the Cimmerillion, you'll get that they work for Manway, one of the Valar. Yeah, if you don't get that right. reference now, then you will then. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. But you can see how already this is, you know, there is a confrontation that's open up for discussion. Um, and now there's a possibility that we could compare the different political systems of the Eagles and uh, everybody else and use that as a window to discuss different political systems in our own world. Um, so that's, I mean, that is what Brock and I do. We have longstanding debates that still have not been uh, cleared. <laughs> well, to, 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 bring a, to bring a little more structure to Peter's answer, because, yeah, you know, yeah. as usual, you have to let the child have his way first, oh and then God. I can sort of make sense of what he said. Um, we, it took us about, let's say 10 episodes or may, maybe 15 to actually get down to, we, we knew between ourselves what the lands of Leviathan meant, um, as a, as a space for debate, but it didn't, it wasn't really crystallized in the format of each episode. And so we developed a, we, we take great pride in the fact that we don't script any of our episodes we don't have anything lined up in particular of what we're going to say we just have a theme and a topic and that's it um and it came out from realizing that each time we we discuss something we want to set that that first understanding i think what tolkien would refer to is you know that first belief system where you've got that skeletal bone structure of a story and that in our episodes comes across normally in the form of a political concept that we want to explain um, and test and debate about it. And that forms the ground in which we will place a supernatural or fictional world where we'll play out with, you know, little figurines, um, the more fun aspects of what we think would be possible in that world. Um, and that's the that's the topic or that's the film or the TV franchise, whatever it is we want to discuss. Um, and so within that structure, we realize that, okay, so actually what the Lands of Leviathan means to us is it's a land in which political theories and concepts are tested against each other using the fictional flexibility uh, of of popular culture and fictional and, and worlds that have been created you know in, in imaginative spaces so it's it's using things like avatar and the navi and the different type and the unique sort of colonial structure we saw there to test whether or not we think colonialism is is accurately represented as a concept there and, and how it has been represented in the past in our own world. So it's, so I like that to answer your question, I like that you used the, and the analogy of um, Tolkien's sort of dual layer of beliefs that you had the bone structure and, uh, and, but on top of that, you allow the reader to impress themselves upon the story, but yet not have to do it in such a way that it would challenge their fundamental beliefs. So they could still mm -hmm. have their own unique imaginative experience there and i think that the way that we pick as well i mean it works both ways there'll be some weeks where you know we'll watch a movie or be watching a tv series and i'll just think and brock will just think hey this is a good example of this idea so we'll work from the popular culture to the political idea and then other times we'll be reading a news article or listening to a lecture or doing our own academic work and be like this is a really cool idea to tackle let's find a popular culture where it's um displayed sometimes that's a lot more difficult because it, you're you're dealing with a nuanced concept that now you have to find a uh, a popular culture or character that you can explain it through it's sometimes it's more fun to do it those that way because we found that those nuanced concepts you can't find uh, an example in popular culture that fits quite uniquely that would you know it would fill a healthy chunk of an episode um, so you have to sort of float the idea through various different 
illustrations in popular culture. So you, mm -hmm. you end up using many different examples, and that, that normally lends itself to good debate. And you can take the concept through its various spectrums of understanding. Um, so those different interpretations are quite fun. Now, what are some worlds you guys haven't visited yet in, in your podcast that you hope to do something with in the future, if that's not giving too much away? Uh, I'm trying to think. Um, we... we yeah. So we haven't part? started our we haven't started our series on on ideologies yet, mm. um, and we're playing we're trying to find a fitting popular cultural theme that will lend itself easily to each ideology. So you don't want to just take um, let's say conservatism and say right this is a world in which we can describe the uh, the political regime as conservative. We want to try and make it a bit more fun and a bit more accurate um we're trying to find a way to do it in such uh with more personality and with more customizability so maybe something more like using different characters mm. we thought if we find different characters we can span different political uh, different popular cultural themes and different shows but at the same time still stick truly to the type of idea the, the particular ideology you want to do in that episode it mm. also give us you know quite a bit of content to develop um, in the future, because if you do conservatism one month, the next month you can do socialism, and the month after that you can do libertarianism, whatever. Um, we've also got, uh, you know, we haven't touched on Harry Potter at all, um, and that's still waiting. We're waiting for mm -hmm. our guest speaker to avail themselves for that one. Um, we've got a few uh, that we still want to do with X-Men and Avengers. They always lend themselves quite easily, um, and we, we try and use those types of, those kinds of um themes to rather fit the topic for that week so i'd rather mm -hmm. say right we're going to talk about x-men this this week what do we want to bring out of that rather than saying i want to talk about the presidential debate in the u.s which political which uh theme are we going to use for that mm. um so you know they, they, they give us quite a bit to work with and obviously i mean there's there are some universes that we've only just touched on um, so, you know, we've, we've spoken about the Battlestar Galactica universe, but very briefly, um, in a, in, in a couple of our episodes. So it's like, that's one that I would like to get more into because the relationship between, uh, you know, the military and the government is, is very interesting. Uh, the relationship between science and the government, the use of technology. And I, I mean, there's also some popular culture that we are not so good at you know we we know a lot about comic book stuff well, we know a lot a lot about superheroes but most of that stuff i think for me and, and i think for I, I don't know brock if you read comics when you're a kid um but most of that stuff for me comes from the movies and stuff because growing up in south africa comic books uh or you know superhero comic books were very expensive um so we couldn't afford that stuff but that stuff I would like to break into a lot more. So definite X-Men, as Brock said, we haven't touched. And um, there's a couple uh, – we've had conversations with a couple of people who have asked us to break into tabletop games. Uh, so like Warhammer uh, 40K and uh, Dungeons and & Dragons and things like that. And that's, the, like, that's a big gap, I think, in a Brock and I's nerd culture because we haven't – played that uh we didn't play that that much we were much more of computer game uh guys mm. so we were playing rpgs yeah. um on computers but i think there's there's tons of stuff that we can still explore i mean i don't think we're, we're anywhere close to running out of um out of uh, out of stuff to explore and obviously there's tons of concepts that we can explore like we still want to do stuff on like political feminism political green movement ideologies so yeah that's that's i think where we're going but we, we also tend to wing it quite a bit <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we also try to keep a little uh, flexibility for for current affairs and and current topics. You know, we we kind of had to. We got about six weeks to prepare for the Brexit um, referendum. You know, we know the 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 presidential debates coming up. Um, we know that uh, Ban Ki Moon's about to find a replacement in the mm. UN Secretariat. So those kinds of things um, we need to just keep in our calendars. And uh, we, as much as we would want to do, for example, an episode on Lost, the TV show, and social identity theory, um, you know that'll have to wait if if Trump has a major victory against Hillary uh, during the week. 
So there's a bit of flexibility. But I'd say formally, what, what listeners can look forward to, the worlds that we're definitely be touching on soon, um, is Harry Potter, Battlestar Galactica. X-Men. Uh, and then some, yeah, X-Men definitely, and, and, and superheroes. Cool. Now, just to wrap things up today, uh, you guys, as, as we mentioned several times, are South African. Um, and besides you two, uh, the only other South Africans I'm, you know, honestly even aware of are, you know, Nelson Mandela, uh, Dave Matthews, God help hey, us. Hey, yeah, I love Dave uh, I don't even know who that is. What? <laughs> You're Dave lucky. Matthews, Dave Matthews Band. I don't know why everybody hates Dave Matthews Band so much. Oh. Crash into me, it's, it's cool, man. Is it a musical? <laughs> is it? Yeah, Dave Matthews it, Band. It's like a, it's, I reckon you'd like him. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> the villains from uh, Lethal Weapon 2 were oh, yeah, also we South African yeah, yeah. and Trevor Noah that, that's oh, yeah. it. Uh, so I think needless to say I, I'd be remiss if I did take the opportunity to ask about it uh, not unlike the United States South Africa is a nation with a colonial foundation that's had a, a bit of a controversial history concerning racial relations that's putting it um, that's putting it very very mildly <laughs> so, you know, yourselves were very young uh, towards the end of the apartheid regime um, before it collapsed. And I'm a little bit older. And one of you know, my my early political memories is uh, the magnitude of Mandela's election uh, in 94. Uh, but if you would, uh, could you combine your powers of political science and international relations and give the listeners your personal and professional impressions um, on the state of South Africa, you know, which is, I think, currently Africa's second or third largest economy. It's actually the first. We jumped back up recently. We jumped back up. Oh, way to go, guys. <laughs> wasn't me. I didn't do it. I'm in Australia. <laughs> uh, Brock, you, you go first so that I can tear your answer apart when you're done. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, so this is a, a question about the current state of South Africa. Yeah. Um. How much time do we have? <laughs> as long as you want, man. <laughs> um, I have to try and stay positive. Um, I'm a natural pessimist. And uh, let's try and keep it professional. Um, as far as party politics goes, let's focus on the ruling party, the African National Congress, who's been in power since 1994. That was Nelson Mandela's party. Uh, now our our president is a crony capitalist who's abusing state powers and funds to keep himself in power and to keep his uh, cohort in, in power uh, until the until the national election in 2019. Um, what many people feel is, or let's say what the average sentiment in South Africa is, is that the ANC has had a good run, they, they need another chance, and this is now going on majoritarian electorate statistics um we need we just need a different leader so many people are upset with the current leader of the anc jacob zuma and the president of the country and would rather see him replaced within the anc while the anc stays in power there is a significant and growing opposition faction that's saying for for south africa to do better and to make optimal use of our resources especially our mining capabilities we need a different ruling party. So the ANC actually needs to step down in 2019 or, some, or you know, lose the elections after 25 years of being in power since they haven't done as much as they could have done. They haven't come nowhere close to the potential or certainly they haven't uh, come anywhere close to the promises that were made in the 90s. Uh, and so to, we, we need to do everything in our power to get that right. Um, now, what, if, what what do we mean by everything in our power? Because the ANC is still the majority, you know, still enjoys the majority of support. Uh, and how does that change? Well, because the the party will have its national uh, meeting, its big meeting in two thousand and seventeen to choose its next leaders. Most people would say, okay, so that's the time at which the ANC needs to recall Jacob Zuma. He's bad for the party's image. He's going to tarnish their electoral chances in 2019. Um, and so let's find his replacement then. But given how bad he's doing, how poorly he's performing, it might be better to for South Africa as a country, not for the party, for Jacob Zuma to stay 
as the leader of the ANC, for him to be in power until 2019, um, for him to continue to run amok um, and thereby bring the ANC down with him, giving an opposition party a chance to win the national election in 2019 and ensure some change and a new shot uh, at South Africa reaching its potential. That, however, the problem with that argument is that the way Jacob Zuma is going, he's going to do a lot of damage to the country. He's going to do a lot of damage to the economy, to the currency, to the foreign exchange reserves, to our um, to our general economic capacity. That's going to hurt our lending status. It's going to hurt our trading partners. And so we won't come out of that looking very good. Uh, it'll it'll certainly set up the new part, the new ruling party with a heck of a lot of work to do uh, in 2019. So. South Africa is not reaching its potential. The chances of it ever reaching its potential um, are slim. Uh, and some people say that it's either going to happen by the current ruling party getting its act together and electing a new leader or by the new leader dragging down the current party and allowing an opposition party a chance to have a go at running the country better. Yeah, and I like I agree with Brock on most on pretty well, I agree with Brock on all, all those points, um, except for the uh, pessimistic one right at the end, um, because I, I'm sure that if it, anybody's listened to a podcast knows that I, I tend to be, well, I am a liberal, Brock is the conservative, which is why we have such good debates on many political issues, and I tend to be more optimistic, sometimes foolishly, about things, um, but I also, I, from a political analysis point of view, I take a very long-term historical viewpoint of what's happening, you know, in politics in general. And uh, that goes into my uh, my view on South Africa as well. So Jacob Zuma, the, who is the president at the moment, is a terrible, uh, you know, crony capitalist. He is he's doing very badly for the economy and the ANC in general as well. But if you look back to the arguments being made now, um, you know, by people in the ANC against Zuma, they're very similar to the arguments that were being made by people in Zuma's camp when he ousted the his former president Thabo Mbeki. Um, it was different, different circumstances, but it's a it's a power um, outage. I think that Jacob Zuma has probably made some very bad political decisions in terms of maintaining power within the ANC. I don't think that from the point of view of the country, bringing in another ANC member to be president is going to make much of a difference. What, uh, you know, again, what I say, what I think is it's very necessary for a change in leadership, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter which political party is in power. Once you have, once you've been in power for 25 years, the chances of political corruption are incredibly high. Um, you know, yeah. the correlation for, for terms in office and political corruption are there. You know, it's one of the things as political scientists we've known for ages and one of the reasons why we install term limits. But one of the biggest issues in South Africa is that the executive and the legislature are controlled by the ANC and a certain percentage of the judiciary is as well. So there's a large amount of scope for political corruption. Now, that being said... There's also a large amount of shake-up happening at the moment. So this year we had the municipal elections, which um, I suppose the equivalent in America would be, you know, the midterm uh, elections to, to mm-hmm. put the senators in, in place. So it, it elects the leadership of the different provinces and the different municipalities within that province. And the Democratic Alliance, which is the primary opposition, took some very important key areas. So... Um, Brock, correct me if I'm wrong because you're actually there, but I, I believe they took Johannesburg, um, which is the major um, city in South Africa. It's where all the uh, economics go through. They didn't manage to take uh, Pretoria, uh, but only they ju- did. They got Pretoria. Uh, oh, they did. Okay, so they took Pretoria, which is one of the capitals because South Africa has three because we like to do things differently. <laughs> um, and <laughs> but if you look at the large-term track. The DA has been winning more and more power year on year in you know in election years. Um, they expect they, they expect that they will win the national um, the national election in two thousand nineteen, and I think that's a large extent because of the fact that the generation that is voting now 
aren't that concerned about apartheid politics anymore. Um, so, you know, I'm, I was seven years old. Or, well, apartheid officially, technically ended in 1990 when Mandela was released from prison. Um, and at that point, I was four. Uh, I'm, I'm 30 this year. So you could imagine, like, people who were 21, um, they, weren't even, they were born in a time when apartheid didn't exist. Um, so they're they're coming out and they're voting now and they're voting f- you know they're voting using their economic they they want better economic opportunities they want jobs South Africa has an incredibly high unemployment rate and we have a very high uh, percentage of educated population as well though you know people coming out of universities a lot of like young urban people who want good opportunities and that's what they're asking for and I think that that's what you're going to see in the next couple of years is a big change in South Africa. Um, and I think it's going to be for the best, as long as the DA also doesn't become a powerhouse of <laughs> crony capitalism. But one would hope not. It's kind of like if you're sitting in Essos and you're watching the Lannisters destroy Westeros, and you're just wondering how much longer do they, how much more damage they need to do before Daenerys takes her chance. Yeah. Um, and 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 flies in on her dragons. Yeah. Um, it's just, just come now. You know, <laughs> Yeah, at some point, you you, you know, for, for even the mild uh, Lannister supporters, you kind of want them to lose faith in their own rulers first before Daenerys can seize uh, power with 100% legitimacy. Um, so it's a matter of waiting and seeing how much damage they can do, you know, before um, before things can change in the, in the long term. Yep. Well, that's a pretty nice analogy to end on. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on the show today. And uh, I I had a great time. I hope you guys enjoyed yourselves as well. Yeah. It's always good to reflect on this stuff, Tom. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It gives us some clarity on the show's uh, intentions. (laughs) Happy to provide that. Do you guys want to give any plugs before you go? Uh, Yeah. So just uh, normal plugs. Find uh, the Lands of Leviathan. Um, We've got our our website, (laughs) landsofleviathan.com. We can always – we love hearing back from our – our listeners at landsofleviathan at gmail.com and we're on Facebook and Twitter um, at Lands of Leviathan. And um, obviously we are part of the Agora Podcast Network and we're hosted on ACAST. So come and have a listen, guys. We are, are building one, up. One last, going on. one last thing is uh, if you've got any intention of buying books off Amazon, we've got a, a direct link for you to go ahead and uh, set up an account. And if it goes through this link, it's uh, www.audibletrial.com forward slash LOL. And if you sign up to the Audible service in uh, Lands of Leviathan, get some support from that. So uh, make use of it. Okay, guys. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks, Thanks Tom. Bye-bye.